0: of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash star talk today.
1: Welcome to Star Talk. Your place in the universe where science and pop culture collide. Star Talk begins right now. Welcome to Star Talk, recording live at the Summit for Space Sustainability in London. It's an entire program devoted to space sustainability. And I can't do this on my own. I got to bring in a co host who's part of the DNA of Star Talk, a professional stand up comedian. And who do we have here? Matt Winning.
2: Yeah, pleasure to be with you here. It's good to be in London, a city that. Um... You can't ever see any stars in. So I've missed most of them my entire life. All right,
1: so Matt is not only a professional stand-up comedian from Scotland.
2: Yeah. He's also
1: an expert on environmental causes. And in fact, let me get your full CV description. uh, You're an environmental research fellow at University College London. Yeah. And have you written a book on the subject, Hot Mess. Yeah. What on earth can we do about climate
2: change? Yeah, that is the name of the book. It's a comedy book. And you,
1: and you birthed this during COVID?
2: I did. I sat in a room for a year while I had a, uh, like a baby. I don't know if you've heard of them. Yeah. I had a baby and, and there was COVID, so I couldn't leave the house. And I sat in a room and wrote a book about, uh, I think the world's first comedy book about climate change. <laughs> all
1: right, we'll find out where that goes in a moment. But let me introduce our aerospace engineer panelist, all right? Up first, we've got Jenna Tijuana. So you have an aerospace engineer background, but also some business chops, right? So this is with iSpace, a Japanese company?
3: Yeah, um, iSpace is a lunar exploration company, um, headquartered in Tokyo, but has European and American offices. Um, And really, we have a a view to connect the moon and the Earth as an ecosystem, and I will leave it at that for now. Okay, I'm loving it.
1: Loving it there. We'll come back to you. And we also have Danielle Wood, an aerospace engineer from MIT. Danielle, welcome.
4: Yes. Pleasure to be here with you all.
1: Assistant Professor of Aerospace Engineering at MIT, and also Director of MIT's Space Enabled Program. And we'll also thank our sponsors, Privateer Space, and also, of course, Omega Watches. Uh, Some of you might not know that Omega was the first watch on the moon in the Apollo program, and they earned that spot. They did an experiment where they bought all the fancy, expensive Swiss watches, put them in a black box, and shake them and baked them and accelerated them and checked in on the end. They opened the boxes to see who still kept time, and Omega did it best. So as I understand it, Omega earned that place in the history of space exploration. We thank them publicly for this. So yes. So I'd like to begin this program with a five-minute clip of a conversation I had with Steve Wozniak. Okay, you've heard of him. He, of course, co-founded a company that they were gonna make oranges and then they changed it. Instead, they started making apples. <laughs> so Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs, co-founders of Apple Computer. So why do I have this conversation with Steve Wozniak? Because he's active in this space. See, see what I did there? He cares about space sustainability. And in fact, he's one of the founding members of Privateer. So let's join us in that clip. Was you're engaged in this enterprise called Privateer, which is all about space. But when people think about space, we think, okay, who's, what rocket are you launching? And is it going to be suborbital or orbital? Are you going to go to Mars? Are you going to terraform? And none of that is on your, is in your portfolio. So could you please explain to me, what are you doing in space that no one else is doing? First of all, you know,
5: I, like yourself, get, you know, dozen pitches a day. Join our operation, our company, lend your name to it, whatever. And it's just, I'm only one person. I do not live in a big, like, kind of, I have a team world and all that. I'm a company. So I take on very, very few of these. And this one was one I took on largely because of my total, most respect for my best friend, Alex Fielding, our CEO. What we started up for was based around um, Alex, myself, and Moriba Jaw, a professor at UT Austin. Um, he has been, an environmentalist about space. And he has been so concerned about, you know, what's going on and where we're going in space and especially this idea of junk. And we want to be starting out. It's like, you've got to know what's there before you can deal with anything. And we want to be a good mapping organization, but we want more than that. We want to form standards and interoperate with other people that have satellites up in space that have good, useful information for those of us on earth. And we want to share it. And sort of have um, just standard ways of representing, you know where things are, and you, first of all, you've got to know where things are
1: to avoid collisions. Is what you're doing then creating a, a landscape, or I really you should call it a spacescape. <laughs> Am I allowed? Is that such a, does that word exist yet? Uh, the, the natural evolution of a landscape would be a spacescape. You're creating a spacescape on which future participants in space can make intelligent decisions collaboratively if necessary so that everyone can play in the same sandbox. That is exact, that's a very good way to say it. Yes, exactly. Well, this, this word sustainability, which is a buzzword today in so many sectors, we've never heard it used before with regard to space. Could you tell me what that means in space?
5: Well, you know, it's, things are growing out of control out of regulation, and what's going up? Uh, it's growing exponentially. The number of launches, the number of, of things that we're putting up in, especially near orbit, near Earth orbit, and we just want to, you know, have a, a an environment where it doesn't become too dangerous to launch the satellites that are so key to our
1: humanness. Well, I, in, in some ways, it's kind of a happy problem to have because it's saying, I mean, when you consider 60 years ago, there was one satellite in orbit or two and now we have countless thousands, countable thousands, but the fact that within 60
5: Neo, years look is what, like- Neil. look what we got from that. Look what we got from that. All of Silicon Valley. I was fortunate to live there and we had a space race going on and the space race, Lockheed Martin moved into Sunnyvale and Intel started up in Santa Clara and the need for chips low. It, it was so, every gram cost so much money to launch into space back in those days that- Oh my gosh, if you could make 6 transistors on one little piece of silicon instead of one piece, 6 times less the weight. And so we a lot of great things that humans have now, including our entire digital world, really grew out of that effort to um to basically get into space. So Yeah yeah,
1: was that's a very underappreciated fact about te- modern technology and how, you know, if it if it only ever stayed in your living room, why make it any smaller? than the furniture that was your radio from the 1930s, right? If someone says, I wanna put this technology in space, oh my gosh, Silicon Valley, get to work. Well, what I'm delighted to learn, uh, not only about Privateer, but that you and your ambitions and your following, which is huge and your legacy, are all being offered to this mission statement. And uh, you are here at the beginning of something that I'd like to think um, will be properly regulated going forward, so that space won't won't be a scary place to visit. It should be a delight. That's for would- myself.
5: I I would not risk my legacy of doing a lot of good things. You know, in my life, would not risk it on you know a company that wasn't thinking the same way. <laughs>
1: Danielle, let me come straight to you, given your professional profile. What does sustainability mean to you? Because we know, at least from terrestrial sustainability with the environment, that everyone has a sort of different sense of what that means. So I just wanna make sure we don't have to be on the same page, but maybe we're all in the same book. So what are the pages in this playbook of sustainability?
4: Thanks so much, Neil. We are in an important era in human relationship to space. Humans are having the ability now to use technology in a way that's letting us influence what happens in the space environment in ways we've never seen before. Part of that is the number of physical objects we put in space. And part of it is the way we change the environment, whether it's in orbit around the Earth or on the Moon. So you can think about it historically and think about the number of objects we put in space and also what happens at the end of the mission of a satellite. My first training is in satellite design. So as a satellite designer, as an aerospace engineer at MIT, no one asked me, make sure at the end of the mission of this satellite that you take care to throw out your trash. They just said, make it work. But space sustainability means that as satellite designers and operators and regulators, we check to see that at the end of the operational use of a satellite to monitor the weather or to make sure we have communication systems, that we make sure that the next generation of satellites and those in many years to come can still come. So space sustainability means ensuring that we can keep space a safe operational place for many generations.
1: That that makes so much sense. Did no one think about that for 50 years? Let's just make a satellite, and just when it stops working, just leave it up there. I mean, whose thinking was that? Well,
4: there's some physics to keep in mind, right? There's a couple of good things. So one, if you work on a satellite, let's think about where the space station is, about 400 kilometers, 250 miles above the Earth. If you drop a satellite in there, which sometimes people do, it's not going to be in space too long, fortunately, because there is a nice system where there's a convenient set of um, particles that are at the top of the atmosphere. You've got your charged particles, got your molecules. So these particles can, can provide some friction if you're low enough you know, in the altitude. But as you go higher and higher, you, know, you have uh, less and less, so you have to move into a, a true you know, vacuum.
1: So what could you have done for a satellite that was above where you have your air molecules and ionized particles to slow it down and have it re-entered?
4: This is a great question. You use this phrase, slow it down, the question of deceleration, right? So one question is, are designers of satellites being told you must ensure that you have fuel that's going to give you the option to deorbit. Are they? Is that happening? Right, I'd say it's not happening enough. Meaning there's been uh, both uh, either regulations at the national level or best practices saying it's important to get your satellite out of space within 25 years. Now, the question is, is that enforced by, by national governments and also is other technical challenges that make it hard to do it?
1: So, regulation is a missing dimension here.
4: It's there, but it needs to be changed and improved.
1: So, Matt, your environment,
2: dude? Yeah, I'm, I'm a... I'm a very much down-to-earth sort of environment dude. Okay, so sustainability
1: to you who thinks about earth problems, what does it mean to you?
2: I think it's, to me, sustainability is kind of like gymnastics, right? In the sense that it's very much about balance, and also I like doing it on my high horse while wearing spandex. (laughs) To me, sustainability (laughs) is basically just thinking beyond today and yourself to think about who's indirectly affected by these things. Think about who's affected by this in space and time, you know, space and time without space in the Earth or space. And, uh, yeah, so, so it's sort of long-term thinking, really.
1: <laughs> okay, so before I get back to you here, I just I just, I just want to... He's talking about how it affects different people. So does satellite technology, or the existence of satellites, affect different people in different ways on Earth?
4: For my PhD, I traveled to a number of countries in Africa, as well as some teams in the Middle East and Southeast Asia, and I asked people... Why does your country want to have a space program? And all over the world, everywhere I went, every country wants to have the ability to use satellites for national mapping of the environment, making sure they can track floods and, and reels after earthquakes, making sure that they can have indications as they need it. And right now, there's not equal benefits uh, in countries around the world on how they use space technology. But it's possible to get there, especially if we keep asking. You know, how countries are going to train their next generation of engineers to, know how to design our free satellites.
1: okay so Jenna what does space sustainability mean to you one who sees beyond the moon <laughs>
4: um,
3: so it's I think it can span a lot of things really um, but sustainability whether it is space, whether it's business, um, it's really about, as Matt said, thinking about the long-term mindset, right? So not focusing on short-term gains at the expense of your long-term um, gains either. So it's it's really, you know, looking to the future and thinking how you can do things with a longer-term view. Um, and one thing I want to mention is that space by nature is not um, homogeneous. So everyone's not going together. Um, there are some countries that are really emerging, there are some companies that are, you know, have been in space a lot longer, and so we our definition of sustainability um, whatever that is, needs to be sustainable for, yes, the space nations now, but also the ones that are yet to come, right? So some people are really at the first early stages of their exciting space journey and we need to make sure sustainability means for them not only for the developed nations too
1: Okay, so Matt, to do your job you need satellite data.
2: Yep. Satellites are so important to look at climate change.
3: Okay, so you're in a you're
1: in a balancing point here because you want as many satellites as you can get up there to help you on Earth, yet we're trying to regulate how many it might ultimately be. Is there some point
2: of instability there? Maybe we'll get there. We'll fix the Earth, but space will be like, yeah, we can't go there anymore. We've ruined it.
1: Right, but you can't fix the Earth if you don't have the satellite data to help. Exactly. And too many satellites interferes with the satellite environment.
2: Chicken and egg, isn't it?
0: Working moms have way too many to-dos. Switch to H&R Block and have an expert do your taxes for you.
6: Hi, I'm Chris Cohen from Haworth, New Jersey, and I support Star Talk on Patreon. Please enjoy this episode of Star Talk Radio with your and my favorite personal astrophysicist, Neil deGrasse Tyson.
1: So, tell me about to both of you. Have a very long view, by the way, and I'm totally impressed with your dual background of aerospace engineering and business. Yeah, yeah, right. Because without that, without the other piece of this puzzle, there is no meaningful industry that you can look to.
3: And both sides need to talk to each other, and including lawyers, and including artists, and really everyone.
1: It has to include lawyers. Yeah,
3: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry to sorry to burst that bubble. But a space sustainability conference, I think we need lawyers, man. <laughs>
2: Space lawyer. (laughs)
3: There's a
2: film there
1: somewhere. So take me back to the moon and cislunar space. That's what it's called, right? Exactly. Space between Earth and the moon. Are there any solutions to this problem beyond the three traditional Earth orbits? You know, Leo, Mio, and Geo? Can we just dump garbage on the moon or somewhere else? I
3: mean, this is part of the problem because technically right now we should be mindful, but there is nothing telling you you can't. and you know, we shouldn't, and this is exactly why we need to talk about it, because with you know with Earth orbits, we're at this point where it's retrospective, we're trying to fix, we know it's a problem. At the moon, we're at the stage where we're not there yet, so we can do something about it now. Now we can
1: pre-fix problems that haven't arisen.
3: Yeah, we can be proactive rather than reactive, and that's very rare in the, where you get that instance to to play that role and be in this point of time. Um, and so there should be more moon discussion.
1: Okay. When I think of the table that people need to sit around to resolve this as we go forward, you know, you're going to have Earth, an environmental person. Certainly you're going to have business people, aerospace engineers, satellite designers, the physics engineering of that. You got to pay attention there. Is there someone else you think who should be at this table?
4: I want to channel my geologist friends who would tell me, the reason we don't want to dump a bunch of trash on the moon is because the moon is this beautiful, pristine place where there's not a, a heavy atmosphere, a very limited atmosphere. So what we have is this amazing record of when rocks come through our solar system and, like, land on the moon. How The do we record def- is
1: there forever. And so
4: if, if we don't mess it up, if we don't dump all our trash there.
1: So no dumping trash on the moon. So but we what?
4: can enjoy this
2: record, right? It's all this great <laughs> history. But what if you set up, like, a recycling facility on the moon? Would that be good? I mean, it's a yeah. business idea.
3: Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And and this is it, right? It's we need to be rather than just one way of we're going and can't survive the lunar night. So hey ho, on we go. We need to we have to, we need to be able to use what's up there to to create this this kind of circular economy. Uh-huh. Um, and it's really difficult, and no one's cracked it. But at least we're talking
4: about it.
1: Yeah. yeah. So what about other cultures around the world? Do they have seats at the table on this?
4: You know, I spent a long time during the pandemic asking this question. Another chance, like you, you wrote a book. I had conversations with indigenous scholars and people who do research on anti-colonial issues to ask the question. Anti-colonial, wow. Anti-colonial. That's, I sat and listened for hours, and you can join me because it's all available to you online. We recorded it. We sat and listened on Zoom uh, to indigenous elders talk about the fact that many cultures, we'll start with those in the North American region, consider not just the physical earth, but also the moon and parts of space as part of their sacred heritage a place where they have responsibility to care. And there's an interesting story that's uh, a a bit sad, but also a lesson for us. In the 1990s, uh, we lost one of our astronomers, uh, somebody who we wanted to honor. And NASA was— Who? Who? Yes, I'm just going to have a a mental—I'll come back to you. Is that your
1: secret way of saying, I forgot the person's name? Thank
4: you for finding my mistakes. It's excellent. Uh, This is Shoemaker. So we lost Shoemaker. Uh, NASA wanted
1: to put the ashes on the ground. Oh, so, yeah, Eugene Shoemaker. Yeah. yeah. Okay, just a quick background on him. Thank you. So, uh, he was one of the early geologists to identify that the Beringer Crater in Arizona was, in fact, of meteoric origin. This is one of the best-preserved craters on Earth's surface for all the reasons cited. Most of Earth's surface would look like the moon were it not for erosion and all the other terrestrial forces that erase the history of these collisions. He was one of the first to recognize that it was an impact crater. And in fact, he was slated to be the geologist to fly on Apollo 17. And I think they found some kind of heart murmur with him, and so they sent another geologist instead. But he and his wife, Carolyn Shoemaker, and David Levy were big asteroid hunters. And they've discovered many, many comets and asteroids. One of them they gifted to me in my name. So I actually have an asteroid, one, three, one, two, three, Tyson, discovered by Shoemaker and Levy. So when he died, they said, let's send the boy to the moon. Okay, so is that what they did?
4: They did. And of course, you know, there's a beautiful story that he couldn't go personally. I mean, because of that, the family really wanted to honor him. So this was done, and it was done through a lander, but... Not through a lander. Uh, done through a lander. Oh,
1: so it landed. So it didn't smash on the moon.
4: No, one of the goals was for the ashes to be you know, on, on a safe mission. You
1: don't want the ashes to burn up? Already burned up.
4: They, they, they were they were safely
1: interred. Okay, fine.
4: But the next step of the story is um, a public letter written by the president of the Navajo Nation in the U.S., whose name's Albert Hale, who says... Um, We understand that this is done to honor this important astronomer and scientist, but uh, I wish that you had asked for consultation on this, because many Native communities, ours in particular but others, uh, hold the moon as sacred, and objects that represent death uh, actually violate our understanding of what's sacred on the moon. I want to give appreciation to a student of mine named Alvin Harvey, who's also from the Navajo Nation, who's uh, done studies on this and, and given me the knowledge I have about it, but just to say that It's a conversation worth having to say if there's cultural differences uh, in how we view what what it means to honor someone on the moon, at least uh, doing it publicly is a great way to start.
1: So that's the opposite of colonialism. There it is. When I think of environments and stability and access points, there are also these sort of magic places in a two-body orbiting system. The Lagrange points, where the net force of gravity and centrifugal forces balance out. And we put the James Webb Space Telescope in one of them. So it's like a million miles opposite the direction of the sun. And when you put a satellite there, it kind of hangs out without requiring much sustaining, much in the matter of fuel to sustain its way. So it's a balance point. And so uh, is this a factor in any of the conversation about sustainability at all? Because there's kind of magic points in space. I mean, I'd like to know maybe if they can be exploited in some clever way.
4: I think it's both a strength and weakness. One question is, are we going to end up seeing a lot of popularity in those sites? Probably so. I think it's going to make sense as people are asking, what ways do you want to sort of have systems working around the moon? We'd ask you a question, how do you have logistics to make sure you can provide facilities? And one could be to have some facilities you know, operating around the points. And the question is, how do we share them?
1: Right, because any other place is just unstable and will fall in. Have to orbit and track it, track where it is. So I bet they're going to be very attractive going forward in the future.
3: Yeah, and because of that, they should be seen as a finite resource and they should be thought about sustainably and how we can operate in in them sustainably. Like, for sure, they they should be seen as finite, in my
1: opinion. Okay, and so there are multiple Lagrange points. There's Earth-Moon Lagrange points, there's five of them, and Earth-Sun Lagrange points, another five of them. So for anything that orbits, you can find these five spots and they're very cool and they even collect debris. So, for example, the, the sun Jupiter Lagrange points, right? These are, they're, they're places in front of Jupiter and behind it in its orbit. And they just collect meteors there. And yeah, so it's been suggested that in one of these places, you could just put all of your engineering materials. If you wanted to build something, just leave it there. It's like your storage closet, because it's not going to fall to any place else. So maybe this should be considered. You're a moon person. Put it out there. I'm
3: not a Sun-Jupiter person, though. (laughs) But no, I think that that makes sense. And, um, you know, I think it's all about also transferring lessons learned, right? So as we learn to work um, in an environment which is heavily cluttered and Leo and how we kind of navigate away from debris, that That technology, that thinking can be used to, if we do want to operate in these Lagrange points with lots of meteorites, how to navigate that field. So really, it's just about bridging the lessons learned in space on a lot of different fronts.
1: Okay, so something we haven't directly addressed. Satellites that were on purpose put there and maybe lived out their useful life. So what about debris? The fact that three satellites, last I checked, have been destroyed in orbit by different countries. But in any case, it is itself polluting the environment, making all activities dangerous. So I'm just wondering, what, what solutions do you have to clean up the debris? Right, three sentences. What are you going to do?
4: First, I'll just say that uh, countries need to commit to no more anti-satellite tests. That's just needed. We need to have that be a global sense of peer pressure across all countries. Uh, that's a geopolitical solution. Just
1: to be clear, the anti-satellite test That's euphemism for, let me blow my satellite into a zillion pieces.
4: Well said. We should should clarify what we mean. So these are tests where country A says, I'm going to blow up my own satellite to prove that if I needed to, I could blow up yours. But I'm going to do that right
1: now. (laughs) No, they don't say, I'm just going to blow up our own satellite just to see if we can do it. No, no, no. They want you to watch as they do. (laughs) Yeah,
4: that's Yeah, Yeah, you
2: better be paying attention. I mean, it's, yeah, it it seems like a very childish thing to do as a sort of threat. It's like, I'm just going to punch myself in the face. <laughs> and I hope you guys are paying attention because I could punch you in the face too, but my face is going to be too sore for me to right. do that. We're going to have to use the money to, re, you know, fix my face. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know if, it, if that really works.
1: But there's a difference between knocking out a satellite in low Earth orbit and in a higher Earth orbit, right? So, So, what's that? I mean, don't all the particles just fall back out and burn up?
3: I mean, I think you should ask,
4: Daniel. <laughs> Again, it depends on some physics. We got to see what well, altitude you And We also want to ask, you know, how popular the altitude is where the original satellite was, right? And where else is it between the original satellite and all the pieces it needs to come down to? So, because
1: so, so. I saw the movie Gravity, oh, which I'm should sorry. have been called Zero Gravity because it was all in zero gravity. But in that movie, they showed this catastrophic failure of all satellites because one satellite was blown to bits. And each of those bits moving at 18,000 miles an hour? Sorry, I'm American. What's that in? Oh,
2: no. Miles, we're in the UK.
1: Oh, miles, we're in the UK, it's okay. UK invented miles. Yeah, fine. So we're 18,000 miles an hour. These are now debris moving 18,000 miles an hour. They can take out other satellites. And in that film, if you haven't seen it, the movie Gravity, you got to get out more, by the way. I'm just saying. Okay. It portrays a total satellite collapse of the entire system, which was named after Kessler. It's the Kessler effect.
4: So I love Sandra Bullock and I love gravity. I just have to note that the, the Hubble is not at the same altitude as the International Space Station for those who paid. it. Yeah,
1: so Sandra Bullock, her, her character, he just decides to go fix the Hubble telescope.
4: Yeah, but they're like
1: hundreds of miles apart in altitude. Plus, she's a medical doctor. So I wanted her to keep her hands off my telescope. As an astrophysicist, I don't bust into her operating room and say, open-heart surgery? I got this. I'm an astrophysicist, right? No.
4: So I think that maybe we had a good message, but maybe, you know, some of the physics was uh, simplified. But the point, of course, is that, you know, we do want to ask you know, how other satellites are affected by the breakup of one satellite. Right. And I'm
1: just asking, what do you do about the debris? Y'all don't have those solutions yet. Oh, oh, Matt's got solutions?
2: No, I'm going to have to bring up another movie right now. (laughs) Because uh, one of the the best and most atrocious movies you will ever see is about satellites in space trying to solve climate change. It's called Geostorm. And the lead actor was from Scotland, and so is Matt. Well, he lives in Los Angeles, and his house burned down due to fires in Los Angeles, and he still lives there and doesn't live in our hometown anymore because to live somewhere that's on fire than where I come from. Um, where I'm from, uh, just outside Glasgow, it, was, it went up for uh, the UK City of Culture 2020 and lost to Coventry, uh, which gets a laugh in the room. It's the equivalent of going up for an Academy Award and losing to Gerard Butler. Anyway, the point is, the, 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 um, the, it's about, he, he invents uh, a satellite that controls the climate and it fixes climate change. And then, some terrorists hijack that satellite, yeah, and start messing with the climate, and there's storms and stuff, and the only guy that can solve it is Gerard Butler. He goes into space. Turns out it was the uh, vice president that had controlled it, so yeah, I've given away the spoilers there. But point is, one of the greatest films of all time, and really don't spend your time watching it, is Geostorm. It's about satellites, climate change, you know
1: interesting so this is a this is not a let's clean things up solution that's like let's fix things with what we call geoengineering
2: geoengineering exactly yeah
1: yeah 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 which again i mean we're not going to get agreement and i joke about this you know that we have acid rain and so what's the solution let's give everyone acid rain-proof umbrellas, yeah, you know.
2: I mean, some people would say yes. People that sell acid, that invent acid rain-proof umbrellas would be like,
4: yeah, we've got a solution here for you guys. So we but should go back into to this question we were talking about, which is, you know, do we reduce face debris by, like, creating less debris, or by trying to clean up the debris that's already there? I think we need to do both. And some of the ideas people have for cleaning up the debris that's there are to send another satellite that can hopefully go grab it, whether it's, you know, through a, a hook or through a, a forceful docking, so I think one question I have is, like, as we build new satellites, can we design them to be serviced so they can actually be ready? So if I set
1: up a satellite, they can sweep up debris. And I can send a satellite to sweep up your satellite.
4: Yeah. It is a question that, uh, yeah. another geographical okay. question. It's like
2: bowls. It's like you're trying to knock the other bowl out of the thing. <laughs> Do you have that game in the US? <laughs> bowls? You mean, like, don't oh, even mean bocce ball. It's bocce ball? What is that? that kind of, oh, of, kind of, of like <laughs> Curling. Curling, yeah, exactly. It's like curling, but... But in space, space curling. Space, <laughs> space curling.
1: New Olympic sport.
6: Ross has all the spring deals you want, so you can say yes to more looks for you and your budget. Two tops for less? Yes. Dad shorts for the weekend? Yes. Mini skirts for less than online? That's a yes for you and your bank account. Find your certified yes for me moment and save 20 to 60% off department store prices every day at Ross. Hurry in for spring deals today. Items and styles vary by store. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application.
0: The legends are true. Overwhelming power. Sauce of destiny. Yes.
1: Uh, so we're going to have to slowly land this plane that we're flying now. But let me get some sort of reflections on this. What do we have to learn so far that we can take with us? A bit of wisdom. Uh, I don't even want to call it advice. Just a little bit of wisdom going forward for all parties at the table. What should we be doing?
3: So I think for for me, you know, being in a company that's sending things to the moon, and as Danielle rightly mentioned we shouldn't be dumping things. Um, the fact that if I worked on a terrestrial company, I would know what regulations I operate on. under.
1: Under a terrestrial company.
3: What? It's iSpace, space It's not a terrestrial that now. Terrestrial company. Terrestrial company. So if I worked for a terrestrial company... <laughs>
1: Everyone today works in a terrestrial company.
3: Well, it's if you go into the yeah, if you go the moon or in space and I would say no, you're going to you're working for a space company. Sure. Okay. okay, I got it. Yeah. Um so I if I worked for a terrestrial comp every time I say that now I'm gonna think of yeah. you. Um if I worked for a terrestrial company, I would know what regulations I need to operate under, um, what assessments I need to do to make sure I'm compliant, go find my handbook, make sure whatever, whatever. By the way,
1: all of those compliances. We're written, you know, we got lawyers in the room. We're written because something went wrong. Yeah. Every line in a contract, in a document, was not known prior to the problem that caused the line to be written in the first place.
3: But this is it. For the moon, we know that we need to be delicate. We know that. So we need to, as I'm in business development, people approach me saying, I want to take this payload to the moon. I have no assessment. I have nothing I can pick up and be like, hey, this is going to... Should we, shouldn't we? This is the this is the analysis. This nothing. is the nothing. No regulations that are very translatable to the day-to-day. For me, the best thing we can do is normalize that, bring that in. And it's very unusual for a company wanting to be regulated. Um, but it, it needs to be because we have, we should have responsibility and accountability for what we send up there. It is all of our moons.
1: That said, when it runs its useful life, we have fuel to deorbit it, or, yeah. or for it to self-destruct or disappear, or whatever is the magic future physics that could affect the health of the satellite. Yeah. And. Tell me about this Eagle document you co authored. What's that about?
3: Yeah. So, um, as part of the Space Generation Advisory Council um, led by Antonino Salmeri, which is a space lawyer, actually.
1: Is that on your business card? Space lawyer? That's
3: badass. (laughs) That works. Um, So it was meant to put together a perspective on lunar governance from the younger generation. So right now, lunar governance is very fragmented. Um, We saw that. We went and spoke to lots of different actors playing in the industry that has a view. Um, And we tried to put together the young person's perspective on what what we want to see in the world. And that is, the output of that was a lunar governance charter building upon the Outer Space Treaty. So we're not trying to recreate the wheel, we're trying to build into something implementable.
1: The Outer Space Treaty, if you haven't read it, it's an interesting document from, I think, nineteen sixty-seven, somewhere. Yeah, this is it. I
3: can't pick it up and know what to do from the Outer Space Treaty in my day-to-day job.
1: <laughs> yeah, so I recommend you read it. It's just a fascinating attempt to think about the future, realizing that space was being born in that decade.
3: Yeah, and it's for states, um, for public sector. So private needs its own its own thing.
1: Yeah. So Danielle, just give me some reflective thoughts about where we should go in the future.
4: I'm really excited to announce that at this conference, we are opening up and launching tomorrow an, an important initiative called the Space Sustainability Rating. Wait, wait, who's we? Uh, we is a group of organizations that have come together in a consortium led by the World Economic Forum, including MIT, uh, UT Austin, a company called Price Tech, the European Space Agency, and we're really excited to have uh, the EPL Space Center, EPFL Space Center, which is in Switzerland. What does
1: EPL stand for?
4: EPFL. is if I can do my French. My French isn't great, but it, it's the, uh, École Polytechnique Fédérale de Luson. Very good. And in English, it would just be, you know, it's definitely university in Lausanne, but they are going to lead this initiative with the support of our design team. We actually do have, uh, specifically for low Earth orbit and for Earth orbit in general, a set of guidelines, which are the actions that any space operator can take and uh, to help reduce space debris creation and help avoid collisions. And so it's a, a long list of uh, options uh, for the design phase, the operations phase, and the end of life, for practices that can help and we're asking companies to voluntarily get rated, to pay to get rated, and to announce the rating to the world to say how close they are to matching these ideal practices. This is
1: like the leads rating on a building.
4: Definitely inspired by everything. And
1: even though it, the government didn't require it, it becomes a sort of a voluntary thing. And then the public is trained to look for that on building. They might move their business into or just live there.
4: You can walk into a building and say, this you know, owner of this building chose to pay a little extra money to have... You know, the green practices for Earth. And so now, since we're not a terrestrial companies, we're asking for companies <laughs> and do the same thing. Both companies and governments can get rated. But I can
1: say that for every Leeds building I've been in, I've noticed that the air smells cleaner.
4: And that makes me wonder
1: what the hell am I breathing? <laughs>
4: other- <laughs> and now you'll notice that your satellite data smells cleaner because it's going to complicate <laughs> SSR rated emissions.
1: So, Matt, yeah, you want satellites to help you monitor what's happening on Earth. So you are the enemy.
2: I, yeah, we want satellites, but we just want you to also, yeah, just clean up your satellites after yourselves when you possibly can. But we need it. We, we need, so satellites look at greenhouse gas emissions, which, you know, methane emissions. We, we can now look at what's happening across the entire world and a bunch of oil and gas companies are leaking methane here and there. We can spot that. We can look at, you know, what... Uh, what's happening in your satellite. So what
1: he's saying is Scottish for methane. Methane, yeah,
2: yeah, 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 yeah.
1: It's not like you had some new element,
2: yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, We're going to talk about aluminum in a minute. Oh, God. Aluminium. Aluminium. Uh, Aluminium. (laughs) Let's not get get into it. Um, uh, So it's incredibly important. One reason is that that methane is... uh, (laughs) A short-lived greenhouse gas? Did you, did you say the word gas? Yeah, cool. I mean, you actually call the, what you put in your car's gas, which is nonsense because it's a liquid. Anyway. The, Gasoline. Get, okay. I should have thought of that, shouldn't you? Okay. Um, so, yeah, we look, me, methane is a short-lived lived gas. So actually, you know, um, CO2 is sort of the, the main gas that we, we emit that's causing climate change. Methane causes more in the short term. And just to be clear, it's short-lived because it's highly reactive,
1: right? With other things in the environment. Whereas CO2 is a pretty stable molecule.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so some people think we need to focus more on CO2, others think we need to focus more on methane, but you know, the gas is always greener on the other side. It's one of the worst jokes you'll ever hear about climate change, (laughs) but very accurate.
1: Yeah, totally accurate. But you still want your satellite data, but you're with everyone we're not going to believe we're going to stop launching satellites. We just have to manage that going forward. Exactly.
2: Yeah, we, it's helping there. You know, more satellites are helping the Earth. But yeah, as, as we, you know, we need to be forward thinking about well, what are the issues going to be causing in space because of it. So I just want to say thank
1: you, panel, for those observations. And I want to share with you what I would call a cosmic perspective on all this. It's not a new problem that technology and engineering forces operate on our civilization in ways that make life better. And we only later learn what kinds of constrictions it is placed on our health and our wealth and our security. And all of those matter in space, of course. So I'd rather view this not as some dire problem, but as a natural course of evolution of what happens when you become better at something than you had ever imagined. And so now you deal with it. And I'm delighted to see and learn that not only is such a conference as this something that's happening now, not in 10 years, because imagine if this conference were held 50 years ago, when we first started using plastic in major ways for food containers and other applications. Just imagine, at the time, what we did with plastic. We used it once, threw it away. Where does it go? Nobody thought about that. Okay, it works its way into the oceans. And now, last I read, the fish we eat are what, 50% plastic? (laughs) So, guys, no one was thinking about this at the dawn of that era. But the fact that it did happen that way, I think, has informed how responsible we need to be going forward. And so, in that way, it's kind of a silver lining to our short-sightedness on the past. But it's only a silver lining. In fact, we can look to the past and learn from it so that our descendants can be proud of what we have bequeathed them rather than embarrassed by what we have left behind. So that's a cosmic perspective for this sustainability conference. Thank you all. And special thanks to our sponsors, Privateer and Omega Watches. To everyone, keep looking up.